Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day, long before we had a website, or listeners, or taste, or class. We called ourselves Movies We Like, which was, with the benefit of hindsight, a terrible name. But before we send you through the window of time to gaze your earballs on movie podcast history, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you decide to become a regular listener of this show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work on our other series like The Film Board or The Speakeasy and Trailer Rewind, please consider a regular donation to us through our Patreon page at Patreon com slash the next reel all the contributors are invited to join us in our slack channel where we have tons of fun and they are entered to win our regular contests guest spots on this very show all sorts of good stuff so thank you everybody for downloading and listening to the next reel we appreciate your time and attention we hope you enjoy the show i uh, i do need to tell you I, I feel like i need to report on my uh my birthday weekend extravaganza. Oh yes, yes. We talked about that last week. Yeah. How yeah. did it go? Okay. I I uh, so if if you recall, it was my birthday. I took the day off to go see movies, and I chose to see uh, Immortals. Uh-huh. Uh huh. By what's his name? Sing Sing Tarsum 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 Singh, and then uh, in time. Right. By Andrew Nichol. By Andrew Nichol. I. Uh, was not keen on immortals really at uh, really it it i was not keen on it on many levels okay i uh, but the the thing that i found so hard to get past was it just looked cheap oh 
Interesting. It just looked cheap. And and what really struck me was when they they would switch to uh, Mount Olympus, and all of the gods would be sitting there in their bikinis, and they would be um, you know looking down on Earth, and mm-hmm. you could see the visible mask tracing. Uh, around the the CG sets, the CG sets looked like something from the news sets that I used to work on. You know, in 1998, that <laughs> you know, like, oh my goodness, we can do a CG green screen set. Uh, you know, uh, uh, this was stuff that we would see at CES and and at um, you know RTNDA, and this was this was like first. It looked like first generation um, um, uh, bitmap texture mapping. Uh, and I just felt like that was cheap. Uh, it was cheap in every way that 300 was not. Hmm. Interesting. And so I had a really hard time. It's like if you read, you know, I, you know, I know you, you teach. And, and so I, I teach as well. And I read these batches of papers that I get sometimes uh, from, right. from folks. And it's, and, you know, if they are not well edited, Right. If you can't read them, then you never actually get to the point of being able to have a conversation about substance. And I found myself so distracted by by just the look of Immortals that I really had a hard time even getting into the to the film. Hmm. I found myself just sort of shrugging my shoulders at the end saying, no, I probably should have seen something else. I, <laughs> I, you know, what really bummed me out, I was a huge fan of the, uh, the cartoon when I was a, a kid, the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, you know? Oh, sure. That, that, that adaptation. And, uh, you know, they had the Eprian bow in, uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, the energy bow. Yeah, um, I don't think it was quite the, uh, the same bow. No, but, yeah, but it was, it, that, was, it was that whole thing. Obviously, you know, it was. I had kind of forgotten about that. In, yeah. Inspired by the the sort of paladin bow, and and uh, I, I I that's like a a bow and arrow kind of thing I fantasize about, and I was totally let down by that. Like they just hardly even used it. I mean, there's that one yeah. dramatic long shot where he shoots four times and knocks down those four guards, and you know that's yeah. something. But I, I just found myself totally underwhelmed. The the uh, I wanted more labyrinth. And the Matador, uh, Minotaur. Minotaur, I mean the Matador. (laughs) The Matador (laughs) was totally out of context. (laughs) Uh, Olé! That was totally inappropriate. Um, No, I, I, you know, I, I I like the, the, I like that they, I guess I like that they didn't make him um, the mythical monster, that he was, Mm -hmm. he was just a a horrifically disfigured um, giant. Uh, with the yeah, with who the helmet, crazy, yeah, head, uh, the, yeah, that was. That, I really liked that actually. I thought that was really a unique spin on it. Um, and then how at the end they kind of you know, you have the statue of the yeah. fight, which is, you know is just a, a man with the bull's head, which is kind of how it's been passed down. I, yeah. I thought that that was an interesting way to look at how a myth gets created that right? that was right that's exactly right and that that was going to be my comment I'm glad you said that because i you know i was i was so bitter about the the rest of the film that i um that i felt like uh uh yeah i i'm not giving that that twist uh, much credit because that's it, that that's exactly right that's how a myth gets created i thought that was pretty cool yeah um and well, i like the look of it i mean i thought i thought personally it, it like the production design, regardless of whether the CG you know was perfect or not, I thought it had a, a, a very unique palette across the board, and the costumes, like everything, just looked really interesting. I, I did find it um, 
not necessarily um, effective as far as like if I were going into battle, would I wear an evil bunny rabbit helmet? I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> but I thought they looked cool. And you got to ask yourself, is Mickey Rourke, is that dude blessed or cursed at this point in his career? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm leaning toward blessed. And then you see him in that get up. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Uh, okay, so in time. Oh, well, let me say about about Immortals. Here's the problem with Immortals. I, I, they made such a big deal about the fact that it was from the producers of 300 that I came home after it and I turned on 300. And there is no substantive comparison that you can make between the two films. Yeah. There's no sub. I mean, between the pro- just just the general production design, the, the execution of the production design is is not of the same caliber well i think i think what people look for is just you know when they say 300 you know the average person may just be thinking oh big fight scenes you know rippling abs lots of half naked people and those you know two-dimensional you know fight scenes where you ramp up and down with your um speed yeah. As far as like slow mo fighting and all of that, I mean, but, that's but me. even that, I was expecting some full on. Uh, what what is it? The the camera? Oh, see, it escapes me. The Viper is it? The Viper that's the like thousand frames a second. Um, it's one of those. Yeah, I mean, I, I was expecting more of that. I was expecting more uh, of, the, and there just there wasn't as much of that. I mean, it was it was it, it was just run of the mill. I mean, it just felt like a little bit more. I expected three hundred. I didn't get that. That was my problem. So I, I mean, we could talk about that all night long. In time was was for you know for my day. It was uh, both better and far worse. I really. I'm so into the concept of that film. Mm-hmm. Like I was in it. I think it's so cool. The whole concept, I I buy it. I buy it. I buy it as a metaphor for the for the the classism uh, that is going on in this country and I I just I buy it. I totally mm-hmm. buy it. And the first act and the third act, I could totally buy it. And the second act it came right off the rails. Had mm-hmm. no idea what the movie was about in the, the yeah. whole thing. I mean, there's that that transition for for the protagonist from the ghetto to, um, you know, to the the highbrow kind of area. It, yeah. it was like there was that that 15 minute sequence of driving through gates that led to 45 minutes of I don't know what I saw. <laughs> uh, it was like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, uh, uh, you know, back to back very special episodes, and then it came back to the movie, and it was Robin Hood again. Yeah, I I feel like it was just I want to see that movie again, uh, and I want to see a, a like a second draft. You know, I think because um, I, yeah, I, I I feel the same about it. I think that it's such an uh, an amazing concept. I I wish that it hit it out of the park a little more, and I think I feel that way with. I don't think I've seen all of Andrew Nichols' films, but Gattaca, I also felt that way about. Um, I think it's just one of the most fascinating sci-fi movies made. Um, but still, it's one that I just sometimes, when I watch it, I'm just like, God, there's some just something not quite there with the film. Yeah, yeah. This one, this one, I think you're right. I think, um, and I maybe I hadn't really thought about it too much, but I, now that you mention it, when he gets to the, um. 
land of the rich and he meets the girl you know for me i just felt like she kind of bogged it down for me yeah this was amanda seyfried yeah amanda seyfried's character uh whatever her name was the um yeah i felt the most um powerful moment oddly for me was toward the beginning with his mother yeah the run yeah i that was one of the most um amazing moments and to to have it end that way i was just like that was a moment i mean it was just a fantastic moment in the film Mm -hmm. totally really really set it up well yeah it felt like uh it it felt very episodic like this really was three back-to-back half hour you know episodes of something and and the the second one was not that great. I, I like how they wrapped it up at the end. The run at the end, uh, you know, mirroring the run at the beginning with his mother was nice. And and mm-hmm. uh, um, y- you know, I, I like that they end up at you know Robin Banks. I, I like the Bonnie and Clyde kind of Robin Hood twist. You know, I I like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that felt good to me. I I just felt like it was it was one of those. God, I just wanted more, and I I was disappointed as a result. So all, yeah. on on the day, I give it a a solid three stars. Uh, you know, um, I, I really buoyed by the sci fi concept of in time. That's my day. Yeah. Three stars because in time had a good thing. It pulls up immortals. Ah, oh, well, good. Yeah, I'm glad that worked. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Charlie Kaufman, can we? Yeah, let's let's talk about Charlie Kaufman. And uh, while we're at it, we can throw in Donald Kaufman as well. What's the deal with that guy? <laughs> Donald Kaufman. She hates me. She's disappointed. I could see it in her eyes when we met. I've got to stop sweating. Oh, she looked at my hairline. She thinks I'm bald. She's thinking I would never in a million years sleep with this guy. We think you're great. Oh, thanks. Wow, that's that's nice to hear. Coffee would help me think. Coffee and a muffin. I'm going up to Santa Barbara this Saturday, and I I was wondering. Oh. I'm sorry. So I'll just be right back with your pie then. Drum roll, please. I'm gonna be a screenwriter like you. I'm putting in a chase sequence. So the killer flees on horseback, cops after them on a motorcycle. And it's like a battle between motors and horses, like technology versus horse. Uh, okay, so we're talking about uh, adaptation. Can you Adaptation can, from 2002. Walk us through the specifics of adaptation. Of the, uh, the plot is basically um, takes place in the real world uh, for the most part. Although I, I guess you could say it's an imagined version of the real world that Charlie Kaufman came up with in his um, um, struggle to figure out how to adapt to this novel, uh, The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. Um, he couldn't figure he was in real life, he was hired to adapt this book and couldn't figure out how to adapt it because it's kind of one of those not really adaptable books. He, um, instead of trying to adapt it, he decided he was going to write the script about him trying to adapt it, which, you know, when you hear that, it sounds pretty outlandish. And, uh, you know, he's even said that he was afraid to tell anybody what he was doing. So he just did it because he knew that if he told them that this was his idea, that they would have just immediately shot it down. So he went and did it. 
and turned it in and and uh, obviously everybody loved it. So here's the story about Charlie Kaufman trying to adapt The Orchid Thief um, with now his twin brother uh, Donald living in his house and driving him mad and uh, <laughs> who who on the way decides he also wants to become a screenwriter and uh, is you know the sort of guy that you just don't want writing screenplays because they're the sort that end up uh, as the completely nonsensical action thrillers that uh, we all end up seeing trailers for time after time. So, um, yeah. So that's a, that's a good start of the yeah. plot. It's uh, you know, I guess from there, I mean, we do meet Susan Orlean, um, the character who wrote the book, and uh, find, follow her as she's researching the book. It's it jumps around a lot in time. So we jump back three years earlier when Susan Orlean meets her subject, John LaRoche, uh, down in Florida as he's trying to find this very elusive orchid called the ghost orchid down in the uh, some swamp in Florida, the Frackahatchee or something. Swamp. <laughs> I don't remember what it's called. <laughs> you do great service to the, the tribal leaders of the, fra- <laughs> of the Frackahatchee. What is it? It's something uh, like that. I don't know. I've got it. Anyway, here. it'll get there. So she. Uh, so they. Uh, they go to the. Um, so in the this version of Susan meeting John LaRoche, she um, kind of falls for him in this way. She uh, LaRoche introduces her to this drug that he creates from the ghost orchid. They crush it down and make this drug with that the Seminoles have as some ancient tribal drug that they extract from the flower and uh, they start taking this drug and they you know totally fall for each other she starts posing naked on on his uh, porn site and you know just <laughs> I mean it's it's completely outlandish and it's it's just brilliant that's the, okay all right go ahead finish your well, I was just gonna say in the meantime uh charlie's brother donald who has now decided to become a screenwriter and um does much better mingling with the hollywood crowd than charlie does um is working on this script called the three about these three people a cop a killer and a woman um, the killer kidnaps the woman and the cops after them. But in reality, they're all the same person. It's it's just a completely ridiculous story. And the um, Charlie is so stuck with this story that he gets his brother to help him because uh, he feels that maybe his brother will be able to help him out. And, and there's a visit with Robert McKee, the, uh, the you know, world-renowned screenwriting um, expert who speaks around the world and um, uh, gosh what else I I mean it's it's kind of a tricky one to talk about it's extremely difficult I'm I'm like hearing you spin yeah I I am kind of spinning because I'm like what really would I say next well because it's okay so there are two real concrete I think timelines going on, right? I mean, there's the there's the three years prior and the present day. Yes, right. right. I mean, that's those are our functional kind of parallel timelines in terms of the the story. Right, right. Uh, I, the three years ago timeline. That's when Susan Orlean is researching her book, meets John LaRoche, 
falls for him, starts doing the drugs. Susan Orlean is a person who's, you know, not happy with her life and through John LaRoche, um, she's finds somebody who is excited about who has a passion and follows it. Yeah. She feels that she's never done that. And so kind of does that through him. The uh, what is so one of the things that is so fascinating to me about this movie. I you know, I I remember it uh, you know, I had only seen it a couple of times, a long time ago when it first came out, right? And and because it came out, we we've already said when it came out, right? When did it come? It was two thousand two. Two thousand two. Yeah. All right, so it came out in two thousand two. I remember seeing it right when it came out, and I saw it again, sort of, you know, shortly after. But I haven't seen it in years, and so I I'm watching it again. I I realized that I there's so much of this. I'm re- I'm really interested in your perspective on this question. You there's so many turns in this movie that are that that reek of um writer's block exercise and and knowing that Charlie Kaufman was dealing with such staggering writer's block that took him you know years to actually get through this script that he was contracted to write mm-hmm. um it it just makes you think okay all right now so he uh the the third act is just peppered with these unbelievable twists that that are written into the script that to get the characters moving out of this, out of whatever, you know, whatever unbelievable twist that they happen to be in, uh, you know, from the point where Donald gets shot. Uh, I think, you know, Donald gets shot. Uh, the There's the car accident. There's the uh, Chris Cooper's getting character getting eaten by an alligator. I mean, those things happen one after another. And mm-hmm. you, you just sit there watching. How did this, how did this slip by? And how is he possibly getting me to enjoy this? Like, how <laughs> right. is he able to make this anything but camp? And yet, I find myself riveted by it. Like, it's it's absurdist theater that I like. And I'm I'm curious how like how would you have graded this screenplay if you were grading a student who turned this into you? Yeah, well, that's that's a tricky question. I it's it's hard to say, but. If you, if you, it's one of those screenplays where if you read it wrong or you're not in the right mindset, um, it's entirely likely that you may not catch what he's doing and you may look at it and go, oh, it's just, you know, so cliche. It's all the cliche happen- things happening in this story. Um, but when you see what he's really doing and when, you know, it, I, I've talked to people who really just didn't like this movie because. They felt the ending was just so cliche. Like, and I, I'm just not sure if they really, if they really got it, or maybe they they did get it, but they felt that it was too self-referential. You know, I'm not quite sure what they didn't, what didn't click for them. But for me, what it what happens is he uses the cliches and all of the, um, uh, the stuff that you you see happening in the third act of a film um you know the car chases the um the dragging them out to the swamp to kill them the the chase through the swamp the the reconciliation scene the you know one like you were saying it's one after the other you know one gets shot the self-sacrifice you know all of that stuff that just keeps happening and over and over and over again it it kind of um it works really well because right from the beginning, he's telling you that that's not what he wants to do. 
and then through his character i think i think what changes it for me is when his character sits down and chats with um robert mckee in the film played by brian cox brilliant the actor yeah it's just so perfect um robert mckee <laughs> you know spells it out right there you know he says that this is you can't make that movie I mean, he very specifically says, you know, why would I want to see that movie? Why would I want to see it? It's just, it's, it's not something that, that people would want to see. And, you know, when they're sitting down in the bar afterward, he says, you know, you just, just wow them in the end, you know, whatever it is that you need to do, just make sure you wow them in the end. And it's, it is so um, self-referential and it is just pointing a great big finger at what you're about to see. Yeah. But because he's pointing that finger and because it's the writer pointing that finger and because they don't play it up like all cutesy, like, oh, look at us, you know, look at us doing exactly what we, you know, we're just saying we shouldn't do. Um, it ends up working really well. Yeah, I think he does. But here's my here's the sort of corollary question that goes with that. Do you think Kaufman would have been able to make this movie? If he hadn't already done uh, Malkovich, no, I don't think he. Um, well, it's it's very likely that he wouldn't even have been offered the chance. Um, if well, you're saying if you're saying yeah. he was offered the chance as a as a as kind of an unknown or you know as somebody who's kind of come from TV because no, kind I of should no, he did. He came from, but he came from TV in a weird way. I mean, the Dana Carvey show. Uh, yeah, yeah, he did I mean, a lot of weird, strange, but but strange. the but but it was all weird stuff that feels to me like he is making movies that are out of his god oeuvre, right? Like, <laughs> right? Like he's making movies that were not uh that were not personal to him he was writing scripts that were not personal it was a sketch it was sketch comedy i mean you know i know people who celebrate multiple sort of genre and that's fine but yeah. but the 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 trick here is that uh um you know he was uh, would he have been able to get this movie made to participate in this movie the way he did if if malkovich hadn't been the movie that it was right i mean he yeah i don't think so I don't think people would have been able to say, oh, we get it because of who you are and what you've done. I, I don't think there would have been um, the full understanding of it. I think I think in order for this movie to have been made the way that it was made, it had to be him and it had to be after being John Malkovich. That's an interesting contrast to some of the other movies we've talked about, right? Where you end up with... Um, well, I mean, the other movies we talked about, right? Raiders, where every one of those movies had a whole bunch of different people come in and out, you know, working on the script. Right. Uh, and this, this is a movie that, you know, like it or not, where it succeeds, it succeeds because it is a singular vision from a guy who is a singular visionary. Yeah. No, I, I don't. I, I, this is not a project that I can, I could ever envision somebody collaborating on with him. No, except, except for Donald, for Donald <laughs> I, which we have to say in quotes. What's the deal with Donald? You know, I think what uh, is 
great about Donald is it's the first completely fictional character that's been nominated for an Academy Award. <laughs> that's so brilliant. <laughs> I just love that. I think it's just so genius. It, it, well, and credited as the co-screenwriter. And uh-huh. uh, I mean, that's a... He, he's it's, taken on... I wonder if he has like a social security number and... It was a really in, yeah. It's like how does the WGA go about paying him for that? Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a really interesting um, way to create multiple sides of a character of the Charlie Kaufman character. And and writing this, I can see him, you know, struggling with how am I going to get across this internal battle I have with wanting to remain true to the book. But also you know, this outsider's perspective of wanting to um, look at um, what typically would become of the book if anyone else was to try to adapt it. Yeah, yeah. There's a there are a couple of there are a couple of crazy aha moments in this movie for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think the f- the first one is when he actually hits his first breakthrough. Uh, where, uh, and this is, I'm, I, this is going to seem like a non sequitur, but I'm going to come back. I, I promise I'm going to come back sure. to Donald. Um, where he hits his first aha moment where you know that the, you know that the movie he's writing, he doesn't know how to get there. And you kind of are vaguely aware that the story that he's about to tell is a story that's going to loop back on itself. And mm-hmm. he has that conversation with Donald about the, the snake eating its own tail. Right. And, and he picks up his, his, you know, recorder and he starts talking into it. And he starts he starts scripting as he's talking what he's saying into the recorder. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Right. That that sequence, that late night cold sweat sequence, yeah, where you become a participant in the story that he's telling by virtue of the fact that he's telling it about the movie that you're watching. Right. Was one of those movements that you sit up and say, I just got punched, right? That was the first one. But the second one is how it deals with this issue of sort of multiple personality syndrome in the creative process. Yeah, which is, yeah, very valid. Crazy. But what's weirdest about it is that it, it starts out feeling like when you first meet Donald, he comes back into his house after, uh, after his thing. he's, he's having this conversation with Donald. I actually thought that there were multiple hymns in the house with him. Like as he changes rooms, Donald's sort of always there. Oh, interesting. And, and it was an interesting sort of bit of stagecraft where you end up kind of, you know, he crosses into one room and down a hall and there's Donald and Donald's in another room and he's having this conversation. And every time he goes into another room, it's like another version of him is having that conversation. I was totally, I remember being totally bought in to the fact that, that there was, that this was a multiple personality play. Right. And, and so that second aha moment is when you realize it's not that, that at some point Donald became a real character that mm-hmm. can be shot, right? It's when they get on a plane and starts and go to New York and then go down to, to Florida. That was, I, I didn't know, I didn't know if I, if I should be let down that it wasn't actually going to sort of resolve the multiple personality bit right. or if I should really be celebrating the fact that it does. That from Kaufman's perspective, you have this character that is invented to help move through this process of creation. And at right. the end, when it's over, you kill him because mm-hmm. you don't need him anymore. 
And I can right. totally see that. Like this poor character credited as a screenwriter of the movie, part of that of his personality got axed because he wasn't needed. Yeah. That was yeah. brilliant. It it is. It really is. Because you're right. It could have very easily turned into the uh, uh an ending like Fight Club where you get I can't, to are end- you saying that like with any sort of disdain? No, 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 not at all. I'm I'm saying that w- what I mean though is in Fight Club you you get to the end and you realize oh these this is the multiple personality this is his other half yeah right yeah, yeah. I mean that's yeah, that's essentially yeah. what you're saying is like that could have very easily been kind of the direction that you went toward the end of this where all of a sudden you realize oh Donald was never there it was always right. Charlie where the other half is a literal other half or a right. spiritual other half right right and in this case it was a literal other half. Yeah, right, exactly. Twins. Yeah. Brilliantly played by Nicolas Cage. You think? Yeah, you don't think Where do you stand on Nicolas Cage? I mean, just generally. You know, I like him. He makes a lot of really crappy movies, but I like him. Did you like Next? Did you like him in Next? You know, um, Next was an interesting movie, and... um, I actually talked to the writer of Next. Um, I don't know oh, if it... <laughs> that, that's awkward. <laughs> Did you see Next? Yes, I saw Next. God. The, you know, I I did not like it. I did, I don't know if I'd say I'd liked, I liked it, but I did not like it. The, um, the thing that I found really interesting about that movie, since we've gone... Yeah, I'm sorry I did that, but I'm, now I'm interested. Is... Um, the entire uh, nuclear threat at the that the story is building toward, you know, somebody's going to detonate this bomb in uh, L.A. or whatever it is, um, almost becomes a MacGuffin where that it doesn't really matter if that really ends up happening or not. The story ends up being about just, you know, him trying to, I can't even remember what he's trying to do, stop somebody on the boat. The bomb, you know, I think... As I recall, the bomb ends up happening regardless. Um, gosh, it tells you how well I remember yeah, that. Film. I was, yeah, it was going to be my comment. <laughs> well done, next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's not that memorable. But All right. So. I didn't hate it. Anyway. How about, what about, uh, uh, what's the new one? Drive. Drive. Don't drive angry. Drive angry. Drive, was it? Yeah, drive angry. I skipped that one. I mean, Do you know why? Because it, it was I, terrible. It was a terrible film. He makes a lot of really bad films. God, he makes terrible movies. He makes terrible movies. But ever since Moonstruck, I think there are maybe I can count them on on one hand, the number of movies that I really liked that he's in it. This is one of them. I do. I I really, I I think he did a great job uh, in this movie. And in in what is a largely, you know, an extremely challenging role playing twins. Yeah. and, you know, Tom and playing Hanks them was, subtly. Tom Hanks was originally um, going to play that role or the two roles. Yeah. You know, as a Tom Hanks fan, as I am, I never knew that until I did started my looking at this. this until I, yeah, I did my research on this one. I had no idea what a trip it would have been to have Tom Hanks in this film. This is one of those cases where I think Nicolas Cage was the right man for the job. I really yeah, yeah. just I I feel he embodied that awkwardness and like the the kind of that 
self-hate uh, that um, Charlie Kaufman had, kind of that constant banter with yourself in your head. Yeah, Nicolas Cage just does that so well. Uh, Nicolas Cage, uh, the other, gosh, there's another uh, actor that I'm thinking of that uh, that I would have loved to see in this movie, and it's gonna it's gonna make me crazy. Um, what was the the movie, the wine movie that I love so much? Uh, the wine movie, Sideways. Sideways. Paul, Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti. This was a Paul Giamatti movie to me, and in fact, when I think about it, I I it, when I think about this movie, even now as we're talking about it, I picture Paul Giamatti playing that role. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I can't I don't see him doing it. Oh man. Okay, but the uh, I I wanted to get to to Chris Cooper. Yeah, who won an Oscar for this film? I mean, genius performance. I there's so much going on with John LaRoche. I just I was blown away by what he did with it. Blown away. Yeah. It was uh it, it was a a standout performance to the to the uh for me that ended up overshadowing certainly overshadowing Meryl Streep who did a who is always fantastic um, but uh, but is one of i mean i i think this is just a, a genius performance that yeah. has so much humor in it that i don't know if she does that much stuff that has as much humor in it no she doesn't it's very different uh, for her I, you know for her and see we're already sidetracked again but for Meryl Streep's character what i like so much about her is that um you know she is a it's this this middle-aged woman who is sort of rediscovering her own sort of youthful sexuality mm -hmm. through this crazy rabbit hole, right? This is for her this is the um, this is the Alice in Wonderland story. Yeah. Very right. you know yeah. that that's her storyline. Yeah. And and how that interacts with um with really Chris Cooper's kind of mad hatter uh is so beautifully done. Yeah, Chris Cooper. It is. I, the 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 arc for Chris Cooper is is kind of fascinating for me, right? Because you, you they first of all they build him up as this, uh, you know, they build him, they dress him as someone who is you know not to be taken seriously. Missing four yeah. teeth, he refuses to get him fixed. Mm -hmm. Ends up, you know, the way he speaks, the way he looks, the the car he drives. I mean, everything about him is meant not to take seriously. The way he thinks of himself and talks about himself. Right, you know? right. <laughs> the way he jumps from business to business, and one day he's in flowers, the next day he's in porn. Yeah. Um, and 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 it all leads up to sort of this that that moment when they're wandering the swamp together, and and he she starts to discover. I think the way I read it that she starts to sort of become aware that that he is full of it. Yeah. That he's lost. He's gotten them lost together. And then they happen to stumble on the orchid. Right. What is that moment for you? Is that a moment that, I mean, that moment when she's, when she looks back and she says, it's a flower. It's just a flower. Yeah. What is that moment for you represent in the film? Like what is that? Is that an important moment? Yeah, it's a big moment, you know, for a character at that point who has been so um, set on finding this way to follow this passion that that John LaRoche exhibits, you know, uh, she's, you know, in pursuit of this of this um, this ghost orchid flower and through the process of getting lost and not 
I mean, circling the swamp for, you know, into the evening, um, only to stumble upon it, you know, it, it's almost like it makes her realize that, um, I guess to a certain extent, you know, she kind of sees from his perspective how, you know, he talks about, he, he latches on to something that he's passionate about. And then all of a sudden, he just isn't interested in it anymore. He moves on to something else that he's passionate about, you know? And for her, it's that it, she has that moment of realization where, you know, it's, there's, there's nothing passionate about this pursuit of this flower. All we're doing is just looking for a flower in a swamp, you know? Um, so what? There it is. It's, it's a flower. It's, it's a moment where she kind of realizes that pursuing a passion isn't necessarily going to be the answer to your life. It's not going to be the thing that kind of clues you into the answers of the universe. It's just, it's a moment. Well, right. And because you, when you, when you look at her and you watch her path to that moment, she was always struggling to keep up. Right. Or to catch yeah. up, I should say. Like it, it felt very much like she was in a rush to kind of get up to where he was. Mm -hmm. And when she realized it was just a flower, it was, it, it was that awakening to the fact that it wasn't a race, that there was no race. Like that was her journey of discovery to me. Yeah. And everyone is going to have to find their own path to, to finding the passion in their own lives. She's, she's trying to latch on to this other person's passion. And at that moment, she realizes that that's not the answer for her. You know, she has yeah. to find her own her own path. It's yeah, she can't just she can't live vicariously through somebody else who's passionate. We haven't talked, I, I think, at length, maybe enough about the idea of the, the writer writing himself into the script. Yeah. Well, yeah, and not just writing himself into the script, but writing himself into the script, writing himself into the script. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really... a very self-referential -refer loop. You said, when he starts dictating into his microphone, literally, we, as he's dictating it, we jump back almost to the beginning of the film and start seeing the film being recreated. Right. You know, uh, even jumping back farther to the beginning of time as we see, you know, the cosmos bringing, you know, all the forces together to create Earth. I mean, it's... That was, that was maybe <laughs> a little heavy-handed. I don't you know. know. I don't think so. I <laughs> I just loved it. <laughs> you you and Jerry Aronson. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jerry. I I think uh no, I that that was a bit that that was um you know what it it reeked to me of um oh man. We record these things so late at night. <laughs> I'm just not. I'm just not on my game. Hold, hold on. Uh, it's later for me, Bucko. I, that's only because Oregon is one of the backwards states uh, that doesn't do the that does the daylight saving. I hate daylight savings. Hunter Thompson, right? Mm -hmm. This this uh, in so many ways is inspired by by Hunter Thompson, you know, and the Great Shark Hunt and and the whole sort of Gonzo. Uh, Gonzo Gestalt of of being a a media personality that injects himself 
mm. into the story. It takes not just a, a observational, but an active role. Sure. In in the story, and and that's what feel that's what is so jarring to me about about what Kaufman did, is that not only did he, I, I mean, he he took a work of fiction. He was hired to document or to to adapt a work of fiction that exists, right? Right. I mean, I could go read this book, The Orchid Thief, uh, by Susan Orleans, right? She's mm-hmm. this is the, those people are real. Right, right. John LaRoche, they're John all LaRoche, real. They're all real people. And then he gets so screwed over in his own head by this process that he writes himself in and starts talking about the process of, of writing. And so then we get into the loop. But at that point, we're still documenting the real process of writing this, of adapting this script and how hard right. it is. Right. And then he fictionalizes it. Yep. The third act didn't happen. Well, even into the second act, I mean, I don't think, um, I, I think there's a lot going on that didn't That's really happen. wholly yeah. fictionalized. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, I I I don't know why I'm so hung up on this, and I don't know why this is an issue, but it just feels to me like like this is a movie that has somehow been is a victim of of the Mad Hatter um, sort of personality disorder, and hmm. I wonder who like I I just kept thinking, what does Susan Orlean think of this movie? Like, does she feel at all victimized by the fact that her movie never got made? Well, you know, it's it's funny. I actually just watched a video of her. Um, oh, where see, somebody, there I there I am, ill prepared. Somebody asked about that and what she thought of it. Um, it's actually on Charlie Kaufman's website, um, beingcharliekaufman.com. dot uh-huh. com. Um, she she uh, she was thrilled at the idea that Hollywood wanted to try to adapt her book, even though you know she acknowledged right there. She's just like, I'm not quite sure how you're going to do it. I mean, I don't know if you're going to have to put car chases into it or or what, but she said, but that's your problem. I'm not going to worry about it. I'll just get paid for it. And then when she got the script, she's just like, well, I can't let you make this. I mean, I I appear on a porn site. You know, there's like all these things. She's just like, what are people going to think of me? And so she was absolutely terrified of this movie getting made. And it took them, you know, you know, some conversations to talk about what they were trying to do with it. And yes, we're taking liberty with who you are, but people are, you know, hopefully going to be smart enough to catch on that, that it's not really, you know, based on a true story. It's not, this isn't really how everything went down. And, you know, she, I think she ended up getting it and, uh, and, uh, you know, from her interviews, she sounded like, um, nobody ever actually started believing that she appeared on porn sites and, uh, people still respected her as a writer. And she, she, um, you know, I think that she found that there is that separation between the movie world of her life and her real life and, and was fine with it. You know, I just made the connection that uh, I, I go through fits and starts of watching Colbert, uh, the Colbert uh-huh. Report, and I just made the connection that she she wrote the Rin Tin Tin book. I had no idea. I don't she, even. He was just. She was just on Colbert uh, uh, just last month, 
doing a, a book tour on uh, the the Rin Tin Tin uh, dog. Uh, she did the biographical history of the dog actor, the dog oh, actor Rin Tin Tin. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Susan she also she also wrote the article that the Surfer Girl movie Blue Crush was based on. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Life's, Blue Crush Life's a Swell. Adaptation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I also have to imagine that if somebody comes to you and says, not only have we taken your script, we've totally bastardized it, but we're going to make it okay. Do you know how? Because of Meryl Streep. You are going to be play- immortalized. By Meryl yeah. Streep, right? Think about that. That I think is a uh, you know makes you feel pretty good. <laughs> I don't know what I would think if someone said Meryl Streep is going to play me in a movie. I might yeah, think right. it was a little strange. No, but... you get Paul Giamatti. No, knowing Meryl Streep, she could pull it off pretty well. <laughs> I can't believe you're not going to say anything about Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti, yeah. I I'm not even going to go there. No, I, it was a thing. I was expecting a thing, no. but you didn't. I was you didn't I was write. stuck. I was stuck on Meryl Streep. What can I say? I can I can imagine Meryl you Streep. She's I a always, classy, classy lady. She's yeah, she's the Iron Lady. Uh, you know what I always think of with Paul what? Giamatti? What? I always think of the end credits of the Howard Stern movie that came out in the late '90s. Paul Giamatti was in that. He played his boss when he was at nbc i right. believe something like that and it's the end credits you just have paul giamatti like being interviewed standing there on a street corner and he's just so pissed off at howard stern's success and he's just going off and as he's going off this jackhammer of some like road work going on around the corner or something just keeps going off and you can't hear anything that he says and it was just so funny <laughs> I don't know why. That's what I always picture when I think of Paul Giamatti, but that will permanently be him in my head. This was uh, Private Parts, right? That was the ah, movie. Yes. That Thank was you. The I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. yeah. I know uh, he's uh, he's pretty good, Paul Giamatti. Oh, I love him. He's, he's on my list of people who we'd we'd probably pretty t- be pretty tight if he knew me. My best yep. best friends if they only knew me list. That's I have a list. Right. I have a list yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. I know you. You talked about it already. Have I really? I've yeah, all, we're only six episodes in, and I've already started repeating myself. Who was it who you said? Uh, Alfred Molina from Raiders of the Lost Ark is he's also a, on the yeah, list. Yeah, he'd be on that list, yeah. yeah. Sir, uh, you know, But it would be Circa uh, Doc Ock. I'd, I'd want to talk about that, and I'd want to talk about what was the... Uh, he was in uh, Frida. Mm, yes. That was, a, that was a classy film. Yes. He's a, he's a pretty amazing guy. And too. not without my daughter. <laughs> I don't know if that's the one. I don't know if that's the one we'd talk about. <laughs> Alfred, I, uh, who, let's talk about that. Yeah. Not without my daughter, <laughs> you and Sally Field, <laughs> so good. Was that the Was that the one about the dingo ate my baby? No, no that, that was Meryl Streep. That was Meryl Streep. Circle. A dingo ate my baby. <laughs> uh, good times. Uh, those were the days. Cry in the dark. All right. I. Uh, what else are, are we leaving anything out of this? You know, the one. There's one relationship we haven't talked about, which is his British, uh, uh, British friend, the woman. Yeah. She's kind of a she's. I, I'm trying to. I've been trying to figure out the role she serves. I, I'm having a hard time with that. She's there, and then she's not, and then she's there, and and well, we haven't talked about Bob McKee. We haven't talked about Bob McKee and uh, Stephen Tobolowski. <laughs> so you you can say what you want. I I've I've read the book. I've read story, but I I don't. I haven't been to the you know like five thousand dollar weekend event. Uh, the story event. 
Yeah, I was going to go earlier this fall, and I didn't. I need to go. So I, uh, I don't know. Do you have any? Is that is there anything uh, that we need? Are we going to rate ourselves as just rank amateur if we don't say something really profound about uh, McKee's role in this movie as a turning point, moving the story toward uh, moving the protagonist toward his ultimate destination? No, you know, it's uh, I don't think we would rank ourselves as amateur, but I think that it's um, on the part of Charlie Kaufman. I think it's. <laughs> Again, jumping into this self-referential world that, to me, helps make everything okay, what happens in Act 3, um, by including Robert McKee and having Robert McKee, when he goes off on Charlie Kaufman at the conference in front of the whole auditorium full of people. Mm-hmm. Um, about, you know, uh, how his of time. Um you know, I don't know. I just I I haven't seen McKee, and I would happily pay to go to his conference if he really does that when he's talking to people, because it's just crazy. It's it's so outlandish, but it's a genius way to talk about what makes a good story. And you know, he's right in many respects. You can't just take whatever book you want and adapt it and turn it into a perfect film that defines you know you know, some, some deep human emotion. That's not what filmmaking is about. It, that in novels, it works great. And I haven't read the book, The Orchid Thief that Susan Orlean wrote. Um, I, you know, I've heard it's a very kind of meandering sort of story that doesn't really have a plot. It's just kind of following her as she does this journeys with the flower guy, John LaRoche. It doesn't sound like something that you can turn into a a film. And I don't know if they would have been able to turn it into a film successfully if it wasn't adaptation. You know, just based on the little I have read about the book, it, it just sounds like something that's not meant to be a film. Hmm. And because you have Robert McKee, like, laying it on hard that... That's not how you make a movie. Why are you wasting my time? And then talking about, you know, just wow him in the end. And even his line about, well, but whatever you do, don't you dare bring in a deus ex machina, you know? And then the alligator comes jumping out of his mouth just <laughs> the next time. Just, uh, I, yeah. And I love the self-referential commentary on voiceovers. And mm. this movie is full of voiceover. Yes. And the, the closing uh, bit is, you know, oh, this is a voiceover. McKee would hate that. Yeah. That's okay. It's, it is what it is. Yeah. It's so, I mean, he, he throws everything, all the cliches, all the no-nos in writing a script, um, not just writing a script, um, but in movie making and just the actual, you know, script writing function itself. Um, he, he breaks all the cliches and turns them into um, genius because of the way that he's referring to them. I don't know. And yeah. and I think by having McKee it it um plants that so hard and it makes it make that's the that is the foundation that makes the whole thing work for me. I uh yeah, I I agree. I you know, I think uh, McKee's service to this script is absolution. 
Yeah. Right. It it lets him off the hook for everything that comes after. Exactly. There uh do you get a chance to read the Ebert uh review from two thousand two? Did you happen to stumble on that when you were reading? You know, I didn't, but I did read that he um he gave it um he said something that leaves you breathless with curiosity as it teases itself with the directions it might take to watch the film is to be actively involved in the challenge of its creation. Boy, that's the truth. He he's a, it's a great uh, review. It's one of I you know, I think he's I think the world of of Roger Ebert. I think he's yeah. a terrific writer and, and as do I. I uh I, I think that I want to read a passage from this review. I think it's a it's it's a couple of paragraphs. Uh he starts out, you know, the whole first part of the review is talking about just how confusing it is, and he goes into it. I hope you're not confused yet, because the confusing part only starts now. It starts when I enter a room at the Peninsula Hotel in Chicago to interview Nicholas Cage, Spike Jones, and Charlie Kaufman. There they are, positioned around the coffee table like my parole board. I've been warned that they will not pose for photographs and do not do TV interviews. The publicity for this movie is being handled with all the candor of Putin explaining what was in the gas. I open with a casual question for Kaufman. Do you really have a twin brother named Donald? The three men jerk visibly. This is obviously the wrong question. Kaufman looks at Cage, Cage looks at Jones, and Jones answers. I did not understand what he said, but luckily I had a tape recorder, and so here are his exact words. Well, I just want to—that's the first question, that Donald question, which is something we get a lot, and we don't want to—we're uh, not trying to be deceptive about it or trying to be, uh, you know, uh, like make a trick out of it, but I, I guess in all earnestness, we want to try and leave it part of the experience of the movie is what uh, you know. These characters, you know, certain aspects of the movie uh, exist in the real world and, and part of its fiction. And to try to leave that open so people can have that experience going in and, and seeing the movie without necessarily having it all defined. And so I guess that's sort of, you know, our concern in part about sort of opening that can of worms. <laughs> In other words, no, Charlie does not have a twin brother named Donald. Even though he shares credit on the screenplay, adaptation weaves back and forth between reality and fiction so skillfully, however, that if Charlie doesn't have a twin, he might as well. <laughs> Bravo. I Well, you know, what a great movie. I don't, I'm, I'm done. I don't have anything else to say. You yeah. know, uh... I just I just like to always acknowledge Stephen Tobolowski every time he's in anything because he's just awesome. Do it. And he was in this, even though uh, apparently his scenes got cut out. Although uh, he plays Ranger Neely, one of the uh, Florida Rangers at the whatever the swamp it is, the Frackahatchee. Frackahatchee. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's what I'm calling it, the Frackahatchee Swamp. My apologies to uh, all the Seminole tribes of Florida for my butchering of the swamp name. But yes, he is Ranger Neely. And if you look very carefully in the um, the scene at the very end, as uh, you know, all of the, the park rangers and police are there dealing with the aftermath of the, uh, you know, chase through the swamp and the, you know, killing of Donald and all of that, you can see him uh, in the distance, uh, interviewing somebody. I think interviewing Nicolas Cage or something. Oh my, Stephen Tobolowsky. Uh, you know, you know what he was. His best Good role. Good old Stephen Tobolowsky. You know his best role. Ryerson. <laughs> uh, 
Groundhog Day is what I always come back to. I do, but I also come back to sneakers. Who is he in sneakers? My voice is my passcode. Oh, Authenticate yes. me. Yes. He is one yes. of my... Yeah, that is... Uh, all right. That Put that on the list. That goes on the list. Sneakers. Uh, that'll go one on of my all-time favorites. I haven't seen that in ages, but uh, it was a movie. Uh, what a great, great movie. Yeah. What a great... I, okay. All right, what are we going to do uh, next? We're going to take a break. We're taking a holiday break uh, from Kaufman, right? And we're we're going to step back a little bit. We're going to, yeah, we're taking a a uh, a pause, jumping back to an old uh, Michael Curtiz film from 55, a holiday film. Yeah, I, it's, it's a perky. It's going to be perky, that film. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I have never seen it. I I look forward to it as well. Uh, this is the uh, 1955 We're No Angels, the original We're No Am- a- a- Angels, uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, Peter Ustinov, and uh, who's the th- who's the the third one? Aldo Ray. Aldo Ray, yeah. Uh, very much looking forward to uh, talking with you about this movie. It's uh, I'm looking forward to watching it yeah. and uh, and ringing in the uh, the holiday season with uh, our holiday pick for this year. Absolutely, and then we'll uh, we'll jump back. We'll get back. We've got one more. I think we were going to do one, maybe two more Kaufmans uh, before we. We were talking about we definitely else. one, and and you you mentioned you wanted to throw in uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which yeah. I'm game I'm game for if you want to see yeah. that. I. Uh, I know I enjoyed it when I saw it. So. I do. I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think maybe I'm. I don't need to see it right now. You know, I mean, we could see how we feel after uh, Eternal Sunshine on a Spotless Mind. That was yeah. a, that's a heavy movie. But we'll see how we go. It's a great movie. It's it is great. So good. So yeah. good. I feel like we've earned it. Y- we have. We have. Charlie yeah. Kaufman. Uh, kudos to him for for coming up with these crazy crazy films looks like malcolm gladwell that guy or maybe i should say malcolm gladwell looks like charlie kaufman mm. they're like twins i think he looks more like donald that's that you're so meta <laughs> i'm uh it's good talk good talk are you gonna see yes, are was. you gonna see anything uh, are you gonna see anything good this week or are you uh, are you uh, I don't know if I'm going to see anything good this week. Um, over the Thanksgiving holiday, I did get out with the kids to see Hugo and to see um, Arthur Christmas. I caught Arthur Christmas with the kids. I thought that was terrific. I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic Christmas film. Yeah. Speaking of Christmas films, yeah, it was. You know, it was everything I wanted in a Christmas film. Very uplifting. Very Christmas spirit. I just loved it and it had lots of little funny in jokes for the parents i just couldn't get it out can i tell you what bugs me you know when they do that thing where they uh they have the trailer and they have you know they cut but they end up taking out lines that they actually use in the trailer but they cut the line from the final film mm. I, I when i showed my wife the the trailer one of the reasons my kids and i got her to agree to go see it with us is because of the there's a scene where arthur's on this hanging off the sleigh and it's flying you know uh, it's flying, careening across the sky, and he screams, "No child left behind!" <laughs> and that wasn't in the movie. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff in the trailers for that that yeah. was in the movie. All the playing pranks on polar bears and stuff. <laughs> I just great, great promotion for this movie. It was terrific. The um, yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed it. Well, I I will. Uh, I'm gonna let you go. I gotta I gotta go to bed. Go to bed. Let's uh, pick up next week with We're No Angels. All right. Good talk.
Yes, indeed. <laughs>